A small but crucial corner of military and national security policy remains mostly male. Women who work in nuclear policy often face a so-called gender tax that renders them less than fully accepted participants. This is all according to a study just completed by New America. Joining me with more of what they found, study co-author Elena Soros. Ms. Soros, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Now, for this study, you interviewed 23 women in the nuclear corner of national security. Give us a sense of who these people were. Sure. So these were women who worked in the Department of Defense, in state, energy, at the NSC. And we were looking at people who had been in the field from the 70s to the current day, people who came in more recently. So we really wanted to get a wide variety of department experience and also just generational experience. We were looking at women who were undersecretaries of defense, assistant secretaries, councils, veterans, policy advisors. And so we were trying trying to cover a wide variety of what it looks like to be a woman in that space. But the fact that some of them had careers going back to the 70s and 80s indicates that women haven't been totally barred from that field because that's pretty far back. Right. Yeah. I mean, women have been part of the field the whole time. You can find women who were working on the Manhattan Project. So women have always been in this space, but it has been very hard for them to join the space and also to stay there once they've come into the world and started working on these issues. And so what were some of the experiences they related to you that had to do with what they perceived as gender-related problems or challenges? Yeah, so some of the problems were pretty blatant. And so some structural issues like, for example, women who were in the Foreign Service and got married had to resign until 1972. There were problems like some Ivy League schools didn't accept women until the 70s or 80s, but that's where the nuclear security world was really drawing and recruiting from. You know, military service academies didn't take women for a long time. And so there were some pretty clear structural gender discrimination elements. But there were also some more social side issues, things like stereotypes about women that they're more peaceful, that women are going to support policies like disarmament, when that's actually not true. Women really cover the whole variety of opinion and policy perspectives. And sometimes there was an idea that because there was assumptions that women are more peaceful, they were not as welcome in that conversation because of those assumptions. At the same time, you saw pretty classic problems like implicit and explicit assault, harassment, discrimination, things that really some women that we talked to said they saw people leave for those reasons. Yeah, just the same old-fashioned problems that happen in workplaces everywhere in that era. Right, exactly. Maybe not just in that era. Well, yeah, exactly. It happens still today. We talked to younger professionals who said they saw the exact same thing. And that was really interesting to see women who had started their careers in the 70s talking about the same problems that women who started 10 years ago have seen. And it's different, of course, but a lot of those themes are the same. And that's where we are talking about this gender tax idea, that these are elements that you'll see across the board in Hollywood and in all kinds of other fields. But within the nuclear security space, it's a field that is really high stress. It's really complicated. It's difficult to work in for anybody. But women had what we refer to as this additional mental calculus of navigating these assumptions and these obstacles at the same time. One of the interesting anecdotes, I think, in the report was that a general officer told some women or a woman that 
you really have to get adept at the targeting and uh, bombing aspects uh, to not be seen as simply on the peace side where you have arms control and disarmament. Right. I thought that was an interesting dynamic. You mentioned that briefly, and tell us more about that particular aspect. Yeah, so the nuclear security field is very traditional. It actually hasn't changed much over time in terms of the ideas and the theories and the orthodoxy of what people think makes a nuclear expert. And so for some women, they felt like you're only respected if you've been an implementer, if you've been somebody who's actually touched nuclear weapons. And that's a really small subsect of the population, right? And so when they were coming into the space, they felt like there's a certain orthodoxy that you have to master, a really specific syllabus of theories and technical fluency that you have to get to to be able to contribute to conversations. And one of our other interviewees said, you know, in the nuclear space, you have to have 20 or 30 years of experience, plus this technical fluency, plus the ability to reference all these different things to even speak up in a conversation. And that's in some ways actually really unique to the nuclear field. We're speaking with Elena Soros. She is co-author of Consensual Straightjacket, Four Decades of Women in Nuclear Security, published by New America. And another aspect of life in the nuclear enterprise was the sexualized language that is used to refer to targeting and penetration and so forth of nuclear weapons and all of this. And how did that come to be? And I guess that doesn't sit well with people. Probably some men also may be uncomfortable with that type of language. I know yeah. I would be. Well, it's funny because that's something that is maybe now becoming more of the public conversation, perhaps specifically after we saw the Twitter comments from President Trump talking about, well, my button is bigger than Kim Jong-un's. It's hard not to see things like that and connect it to theorists like Carol Cohen, who talked about this in the 80s, um, that in a lot of ways there is sort of a very hyper-masculine element to nuclear weapons themselves. And in that space, it is very natural that women might not be accepted or as welcome in that kind of environment. But at the same time, there's historical anecdotes like President Kennedy being called a panty waste by one of his senior military staffers because he suggested maybe we should be careful and slow down in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And when there's that very masculine language around the weapons and the actual process of detonating nuclear weapons, it becomes very complicated to suggest something like negotiation, control, um, reflection in sure. that process. And so the central title of the study consensual straitjacket. So what does that term actually refer to? So that was a quote from one of our interviewees who was describing the process of trying to fit into the mold of what a nuclear expert looks like. And it's like we've been saying that there's this very specific idea of who a nuclear professional is and also what they think. And that for a lot of women, there was this extra layer of trying to fit into what a nuclear expert is supposed to be like. Dr. Strangelove without the mannerisms. Right, yeah. And so it's hard for women to do those contortions, but this point about the consensual straitjacket is that it actually implement, It actually affects men, too. It affects everyone in the workforce because across the board it says 
there's a specific way that you can be a nuclear professional and what you have to say and think. And that actually holds back a broader conversation about what we can do with nuclear policy. And it restricts that innovation. So it restricts young men, young women, anyone who's not that gray beard or silverback type of image. Right. I mean, if you think, well, President Kennedy can be called a panty waist. Well, I'm a woman. What am I going to get called if I say the same thing? And the nuclear enterprise covers a lot of agencies, State Department, you mentioned the Foreign Service, the National Nuclear Security Administration, the Defense Department, and more specifically the Air Force. Is it pretty much across the board, or were some places a little bit more enlightened than others? Yeah, it it did really depend on different people's experience. So one thing that you'll hear in this broader conversation about women in the national security field is that sometimes being in the military, being in the Pentagon, because there is that emphasis on hierarchy that even if you're a civilian member of the Pentagon, that that title is more respected than in um, other civilian areas. Other women had experiences where they felt like there was a lot of rampant discrimination in the Pentagon. And so everyone's experience was very different. But even though we talked to women from so many different sectors, they all just overwhelmingly had very similar stories to tell. And what happens with this study now? Who do you hope will read it? And have you sent it to people that probably should see it? Yeah, we had a lot of different conversations with policymakers, think tanks who are working on similar issues to say, how can we address these topics? My hope is that actual current policymakers in all these different departments right now read this and think about what they can do personally. So if they're in a managing position can they implement more flexible policies for time off, for mentorship? And also, are they personally, can they think more broadly about the ideas that they think have merit in these conversations? Are they remaining in this straitjacket, so to speak? Elena Soros is co-author of Consensual Straitjacket, Four Decades of Women in Nuclear Security. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And that was published, by the way, by New America. We'll have a link to the study and to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand and on your device. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. <laughs> 